calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, and welcome to this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. I'm Sam Lum, Director of Private Wealth and Capital Markets at CFA Institute. I'm joined here today at CFA Institute's Asia-Pacific Regional Office in Hong Kong by Mr. Jeremy Boland, a 25-year veteran in the investment industry with experience working in Hong Kong, London, and Tokyo. For the past 18 years, he has been working in investment research at various global investment banks, including Morgan Stanley, ING, and HSBC. He is the author of the book, Writing Securities Research, A Best Practice Guide, now in his second edition. Our topic of discussion today is about the business of producing and disseminating investment research and the best practices for banks, brokerages, and research analysts. As well, we'll talk a bit about the regulatory landscape in the Asia-Pacific. Mr. Boland, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Banks and securities brokerage firms have been in the headlines over the past few years for their failure to comply with regulations and for engaging in practices that compromise their customers' or clients' interests. And these kinds of news flow have not really stopped and seem to still continue to come up from time to time. How do investment research analysts fit into this environment? And what are the key things we need to be aware of? Well, uh, I suppose it's one thing losing money as a client or as an investor, but uh, you know, securities analysts have to ask themselves, you know, who do I owe a duty to? And it's always the client. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the client can lose money, and that's fine. But if the client thinks that they're mm-hmm. being misled, prejudiced, or otherwise disadvantaged in any way, then they might have a cause to feel aggrieved. Okay? Don't forget that uh, you know, a security analyst has many pressures on them. Mm-hmm. A good securities analyst or good security or good research report has the power to move the market. So all mm-hmm. sorts of people will be trying to influence that analysts. Right. These will include uh, investment banking colleagues, uh, sales traders, clients, the companies that they're writing about. And mm-hmm. even, you know, they've got to consider their own personal trading. So there's all sorts of influences. Ultimately, a securities analyst has to make sure that they're putting their clients' interests first. And in terms of sell-side research mm-hmm. analysts, that's all the clients collectively mm-hmm. uh, of a certain category, and we'll get on to that later. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, then, a securities analyst will have to be uh, you know, mindful of the client's uh, interests mm-hmm. and be honest and independent and uh, uh, you know, write accordingly, write their research accordingly. Mm-hmm. Great. One of the things I really enjoy in reading your book, Writing Securities Research, A Best Practice Guide, is the real-life case studies that illustrate the hazards analysts might fall into and get penalized for their transgressions. Could you talk about some important real-life case examples? Sure. I suppose the big daddy of them all in terms of our world was the, uh, the global research analyst settlements back in 2003 to 2007. 
in, in those settlements, uh, you know, various global banks were penalised and uh, research analysts were penalised. In the first round in 2003, 10 global banks were fined a collective 1.4 billion US dollars. So that's 200, 300, 400 million US dollars uh, per company. Research analysts themselves were fined. A couple of instances, they were fined millions of dollars. And other research managers, co-authors were also fined. In, in those instances, uh, they were fined for not really justifying their recommendations, not highlighting their risks, and really being led by the nose by their investment banking colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after the research settlements, uh, we all thought that, uh, that, that conflicts amongst research analysts had been sort of put to rest, if you like. But sure enough, when the global financial crisis comes along, and which we're still in, really, um, other conflicts manifested themselves. And I suppose the big case study uh, in, that, uh, in that regard is the Goldman Sachs uh, trading huddles, mm-hmm. where analysts were accused of uh, giving heads up about their forthcoming research changes, forthcoming changes of view to their mm-hmm. sales and trading colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe they, they were giving uh, a short-term trading idea that may be different to their long-term mm-hmm. investment call. And in that particular case, uh, Goldman Sachs settled with the U.S. regulators, with the SEC and FINRA, and also the Massachusetts, the local Massachusetts regulators. They settled to the tune of about 32 million uh, U.S. dollars. What conclusions or implications can we draw from this trading huddles case? Okay, well, I suppose generally speaking, analysts always have to decide whether what they're going to say at a morning meeting or what they're going to, uh, going to say to clients or send in an email perhaps, they've all got, always got to decide, is it research or isn't it research? Um, and uh, as I say, this, this uh, is a crucial decision that analysts need to make on a day-to-day basis whenever they open their mouths, whenever they put pen to paper, whenever they send any kind of communication to anyone. So that's a general conclusion anyway from all these cases. But specifically from the, the Goldman Sachs trading huddles cases, uh, case, I suppose that the there are two aspects that came out of that, really, from my point of view, is that um, a, a short-term trading idea that an analyst comes up with that's different from the long-term fundamental call is, from a regulator's perspective, should be, or probably should be, treated as a different research product altogether. And if it's a different research product, that means uh, that that research product has to go through the hoops of far as well. It has to have uh, uh, the, the research disclosures. There could be definitions as to what constitutes a short-term trading call, uh, recommendation history, highlighting risks, all these kind of things. And then, of course, that the analyst needs to distribute the, the, that short-term call to all its clients fairly, not disadvantaging those other clients by, uh, by just giving uh, the short-term mm-hmm. trading call to uh, in-house sales and traders. Uh, the second, the second uh, implication from the trading uh, huddles case, as far as I can see, is that, um, that it's all about client categorization, if you like. We all know from these, all, all these uh, you know, global investment banks have, you know, have top-tier clients, the Fidelities and, 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 and the Templetons of this world who pay uh, big fees because they've got uh, huge, huge pools of money. Um, but from a regulator's perspective, all clients should be treated the same, unless, of course, they d- there is a, a tiered client structure, a formal tiered client structure. Um, rather like airlines might have their business class uh, and economy mm-hmm. class. If you buy your business class ticket, you, kn- mm-hmm. you, you know you expect a certain uh, uh, amount of attention. If you buy your economy class ticket, you, you don't expect more than economy class uh, treatment. Similarly, with uh, investment banks, um, you know, if, if you're going to differentiate your clients, you need to make sure that you make the appropriate disclosures, that you have a tiered structure, and you need to make sure that clients know in which category they're in. But generally speaking, most of these global uh, investment banks don't have a formal tiered structure because it, there's a commercial reason why they don't. 
imagine you're a client, uh, a C client of a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or, 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 or J.P. Morgan or whatever. You know, imagine you're a C client. Are you really going to hang around being a C client, or would you prefer to be an A client of someone else? So, so a lot of these global uh, banks don't have this formal tiered structure, uh, in which case what they need to do is make sure that they treat all their clients fairly, and that's what they strive to do, uh, to make sure that research is distributed to all clients fairly, and then uh, analysts and sales and traders can focus their marketing attention on the favoured clients, on the clients that uh, pay the most. So those, I suppose, are the main conclusions that I would draw from the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the trading huddles, that you've got to treat all your clients fairly unless you're disclosing that mm-hmm. you have a tiered, kind of, a tiered structure. Mm-hmm. Jim, you have said that if an analyst's communication constitutes research, then the analysts need to go through hoops of fire. What exactly are these hoops of fire? Okay. Um, in terms of uh, well, analyst work, there's a lot of risks involved, really. There's legal risks, there's uh, um, uh, regulatory risks, there's reputational risks. So I think it's always a good idea for an analyst's work to be approved by a supervisor so that the analyst knows that he's, he's, he or she has got the company behind him, if you like, if, uh, if there's any problem. Um, so uh, the, the first thing I would say is that an analyst work needs uh, to go through an approval process, and certainly this is mandated in the U.S. And a supervisor, like uh, in the U.S., you'd have a supervisor analyst or, or principal signing off on every piece of research, if you like. Um, so a supervisor would look at the analyst work and make sure that the analyst has, has uh, substantiated his, reputation, his, um, his recommendation, mm-hmm. uh, has highlighted the investment risks, mm-hmm. and crucially has made sure that there's uh, uh, that the real and potential conflicts of interest are managed through the addition of research disclosures. The supervisor would then also need to make sure that the research analyst is basing his or her investment conclusions and investment decision on, mm-hmm. on, um, uh, on uh, publicly available information and not mm-hmm. material price-sensitive information, right. and that they're, they're not uh, starting or, or, or spreading a rumour to affect the market price. Mm-hmm. Crucially, supervisors will make sure that the research gets pushed through the publishing system for fair distribution to all clients, mm-hmm. as we just discussed. So how does an analyst know if his material constitutes research? What does he need to publish through his organization's publishing system and procedures? And what can he send to colleagues, clients, or the public selectively outside of the publishing system and procedures? Very good question. And I think this uh, goes to the crux of the main risk that analysts face, really. Every day, they are faced with the decision of whether to have research going through a, uh, a research process. Every time they open their mouth, every time they, they put pen to paper, they send an email out or, or, or speak to sales at a morning meeting or speak to clients, every time they're going to decide, am, you know, is what I'm about to say or write, is it research or isn't it research? Okay? Now, regulators around the world will have definitions as to what constitutes research. And generally speaking, there'll be two elements to that. There'll be, um, there'll be uh, an analysis of securities aspect to the regulations, to mm. the uh, definition. And there'll be some kind of uh, commercial investment decision-making aspect to that uh, uh, definition. Certainly in the U.S., it's analysis of equity securities and sufficient information on which to base an investment decision. So those, those are the technical definitions, if you like, of, of what constitutes research. But I suppose from a real-life uh, uh, decision-making process, an analyst has always got to ask himself or herself uh, whether what he's about to say or what he's about to write uh, is research. And in the, from a practical point of view, I'd put two questions to them. 
Indeed, let's take an example. Uh, I remember a while ago, uh, a consumer analyst at a firm that I work for came up to me and said, Jim, I want to send this, this email out to my select group of clients. Do I really have to go through the publishing process or can I just send this out? And without even reading the email, I looked at him in the eye and asked, what do you want clients to do with this information? Do you want them to trade on it? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Hmm, okay. Um, and then by sending this information to your select clients, do you think other clients would be disadvantaged in any way? And he said, yeah, I suppose, I suppose so. So by answering those questions, he really implied to me that his material was probably going to constitute research. And of course, when I looked at it, it, uh, it really did look like uh, it was research. So, you know, you, uh, analysts really, got to take, really have to take a responsibility for themselves to determine whether it's the material that they are, are communicating constitutes research or not. And if it does constitute research, then we've got to go through these hoops of fire that we've discussed. And if it doesn't constitute research, then yes, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter who they send it to. Mm -hmm. There should probably still be a, uh, a, an approval process to confirm that it isn't research, but it's going to be less uh, rigorous than the approval process for research. How about bloggers and Twitterers? Do they need to watch out for the possibility that some of their publicly disseminated materials could be considered investment research? and therefore subject to the regulatory framework. Yeah? Research is defined by its content. So it doesn't really matter what you call yourself. Uh, you can be a sales guy, a trader, uh, a Twitterer, a blogger. It doesn't really matter what you call yourself. If you are writing or communicating what a regulator thinks is research, then from their point of view, you, you could be seen to be a research analyst. Um, and certainly, you know, the definitions for a research analyst in many parts of the world are is someone who writes research. So, you know, everyone has really got to be uh, mindful of this. And, of course, uh, you know, Twitterers and bloggers must be mindful of research regulations and rules and regulations. Um, and if they, you know, if, if they are producing research, then they might need to be uh, appropriately registered licensed. They might have to go through these hoops of fire that we discussed. I, I suppose any, the, the risk rises from these independent Twitterers and bloggers, if you like, if they are in any way making money for themselves or if in any way they are not uh, disclosing the conflicts of interest that may exist between them and, and their clients. So uh, you know, I think certainly from a you know, regulatory point of view, the regulators don't really distinguish between you know, what you call yourself. It's what you communicate. If the communication is research, then yes, I, I would say that... Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Twitterers and bloggers do have to be careful. Mm -hmm. Some banks and brokerage firms have been regarding regulatory fines as merely a cost of doing business. What is your view on this line of thinking? I, I, I would certainly agree with you, Sam, that uh, uh, over the years we've seen big global banks time and time and time again be paying these fines, which, to be fair, in the grand scheme of things, uh, don't represent a huge, great big hole in their balance sheet. But... Uh, but ultimately, after a while, you've got to ask yourself, in, to what extent are their reputations being damaged? And certainly the global crisis that we've just been through, we can see that there's been a backlash against the uh, investment industry, the finance industry in general. Clients, customers, the society in general are saying enough's enough. And only a couple of weeks ago, we saw the CEO of Nomura resigning over, after a spate of insider trading scandals at his firm. And I remember uh, one instance a couple of years ago, well, back in 2008, I think it was, um, that, uh, the, that uh, some, some uh, employee was, being, uh, was fired for, for insider trading allegations. And the CEO of Nomura, the same chap who resigned a couple of weeks ago, uh, he said that we think we'll be affected, and this was reported in the press, we think we will be affected because we've lost the trust of our customers. And sure enough, 
the Japan Pension Fund Association, which is mm-hmm. a huge, great big uh, pool of money, uh, was quoted in the press uh, at the same time saying that it would stop placing brokerage business, stop doing brokerage business through Nomura until the investigation uh, was drawn to close. So really, that does demonstrate to me that uh, uh, in the past, yes, global banks may have thought that uh, fines were just a mere cost of doing business. But once mm-hmm. you start losing your customers, then your whole business model suffers. And you've got to question whether that's the appropriate business model to go ahead with. And I suppose looking forward, um, there's, going to be a, there's going to be a great opportunity in my mind for analysts who are professional, who have got a qualification, and who've got high ethical standards to fill that gap, really, and to... Uh, uh, and, 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 and to take the, you know, take the fight forward, if you like. And I think CFA charterholders will be very well placed in that environment. And finally, Jim, how would you compare and contrast the regulatory landscapes for investment research in Japan, China, India, and other Asia-Pacific countries with those in North America and Europe? Interesting question, Sam. Um, I, I, I suppose regulators in Asia may have been accused in the past of being relatively lax, uh, generally speaking, uh, and, of course, don't forget, uh, in the U.S., for example, they've had 70 or 80 years' experience at this. But I think after the, um, the global analyst research settlements and after the, the global financial crisis that we've just been through and with the, the, the global backlash against the, the finance industry, I think regulators all around the world now are, are upping the ante. And, uh, uh, and, and so I don't think any analysts are safe anywhere now. I, the, the, the other point to make, I suppose, is there's a lot more cross-border cooperation now than ever before. Don't forget, all these regulators are members of IOSCO, which is the International Organization of Securities Commissioners. So they exchange notes, and they meet regularly, and, and, and they're, all, they're all reading from the same page nowadays, I should say. And uh, so, so the, the other aspect to note is that we are living in a global world now where a, an analyst might be based in one location, the client might be best in another location, and the trade might be, best, uh, but might be done in another location. So, uh, all, uh, so it pos- potentially you've got three regulators involved. So analysts can't presume that they're, living in a, that they're immune from regulations now, I think. Uh, it is a different world that we're living in. And as I mentioned before, those who have uh, uh, professional qualifications and who uh, you know, have high ethical standards, like the CFA charter holders, should be very well placed. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thanks, sir. And thank you for joining us for this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.